You're having a good morning? Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here today, and I know that God has been working in my heart. Uh, we're in the midst of a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. In fact, we're in week, week three of what we're... Can I just say EHS? Is that okay? So we, when I say EHS, I mean Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We're in the week, week three of this EH, EHS series. Uh, we kicked off couple weeks ago, the EHS course, which is happening on Thursday night, and a number of you uh, are a part of that, uh, and which is just kind of an additional, it's, a, it's an added process or an added step uh, within, within the sermon series. Uh, we're reading through some books together, and I just want to mention, um, even if you're not a part of the course, you're going to hear me referencing the book. If you'd like a copy of the book, if you want to pick up a copy of the book and follow along please do. Uh, it's one of those books that, that's always going to be on my bookshelf, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's just a solid, solid book. Um, you can buy it online. You, uh, it's available on Amazon. We're going to have, we've run out. We, I keep, or, as fast as I can order the books, uh, they're, they're just going, people are grabbing them. So I'm going to have more of the, of the reading book, the EHS book, next Sunday, and you'll be available, uh, they'll be available here if you want to pick a copy up. But maybe you read on your iPad, you have iBooks or a Kindle. Uh, they're available online that way as well. We even have the audio book, which we've been listening to in the car, which is a lot of fun. But um, if you feel so led, please grab a copy of that. So emotionally healthy spirituality. We, we established that emotional health and contemplative spirituality, when interwoven together, offer nothing short of a spiritual revolution in our lives transforming the hidden places deep beneath the surface. We talked about, we've looked at the iceberg, and you can even see on the right side there on the, the graphic, uh, you know, an iceberg, 10% of an iceberg is visible above the surface, 90% is below the surface. And so often in our lives, so much of who we are is below the surface. And that we let people see 10%, if that. We, we put on a smiley face and, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I will put it in the context of church because that's where we are, but we come to church and people will say things like, how are you doing today? Or how's your week going? And we say things like, fine, right? Fine. And that's just surface. And, 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 and honestly, uh, as someone who's grown up in the church, I know that I've not in places had the freedom to say, you know what, I've had one of the worst weeks of my life. Things feel like they're just falling apart. Because then the person you're talking to is like, I got to go, like, I got something I take care of. And so that, that we want to be a church where we can be honest about what's happening in our lives. So we don't have to just be surface. And then, of course, there's the part below the surface that we might not even be aware of. Things in our past, things that have happened uh, to us, by us, around us that, that are just below the surface, that we're not fully aware of. And, and I believe that God wants to do a work of healing and restoring and bringing those things to light, not to hurt or damage us, but to bring us to a place of healing. It's, the imp it's important that our emotional health is doing well, along with contemplative spirituality, spending time with Jesus. I grew up in a church, probably like a lot of you, where uh, I, you know, I, was, I gave my life to Jesus as a little boy. And, and, and here's what I always heard. You've got to read your Bible and pray every day so that you can grow, right? <laughs> Sang a song about it. And those things are absolutely true. You do. 
But it's not just that. That God cares about your emotions and your emotional health and your relational health as much as he does about you checking a box and saying, well, I read those verses. Now, please hear my heart. The word of God is absolutely foundational for us. But for so many people, they read the Bible and it becomes a book of condemnation, not a good book of life because it's devoid of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the power of the word of God is when we couple it with emotional health and self-awareness and understanding who Jesus is in my life brings nothing short of a radical transformation in each of us. This morning, we're on week three. The, the message title this morning is Going Back in Order to Go Forward. Going Back in Order to Go Forward. And out of all of the messages that I'll be presenting on, uh, on EHS, on Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I believe this one has the greatest potential to touch us, some, touch us in some very sensitive places in our lives. And I want to preface the message this morning with this. We sang a song this morning that said, of, of our Heavenly Father, you're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And in fact, there was a line where he says, you know what we need before we say a word. In fact, God our Father knows what we need before we even know we need it. I've said this before, that God is more committed to your spiritual and emotional health and growth than you are. He's more committed to your transformation than you are, which means he knows what you need, and he's a good father. He wants to give it to you. And so as we delve into the message this morning, as we really wade into some deep water, as we go below the surface, I recognize that it may stir up some things in your heart that aren't comfortable, that aren't fun. This is not an easy message today. It's not a uh, lighthearted message. Uh, you know, to, to take the example of Paul, and he talks about uh, the mature things of Christ. We're not drinking milk today. We're chewing on a big old T-bone steak, all right? And, and it might take some of you longer to get through the steak than others. Sound good? Good analogy? Are you hungry? All right. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the life of David as a model for us of, uh, of emotional health. David uh, in his relationship uh, with, with Saul and David in his relationship with Goliath, nothing you could call a relationship, uh, his encounter with, with Goliath. And we see a young man who's so established and so secure and so aware of who he is in God and, and, and really in Christ that uh, he's able to overcome amazing and overwhelming odds and adversity. What, this morning we turn to another young man in Scripture who is one of, uh, I say this a lot, I've got a lot of favorites, but Joseph really is one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite people in Scripture. Genesis chapter 50 is where we're going to kind of land today. Understanding this, the life, the life of Joseph encompasses almost a quarter of the book of Genesis. That's worth noting because Genesis covers a lot of, lot of ground, 
right? Adam is there. Noah's in there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all in there. But when it comes to the life of Joseph, almost, almost 12 chapters of the book of Genesis are devoted to this young man. And so that's worth noting because if the Bible and if really the Holy Spirit chose to give that much emphasis to this young man's life, we should probably camp out here a little bit and learn some things from him. Sound good? So Genesis chapter 50, I'm going to read verses 15 through 21, and they give a little context and some of the background of what's happening. Starting in verse 15, the words, by the way, will be up on the screen. If you have uh, a smart device, an iPhone or an iPad or a Galaxy or whatever it is, you can download the Bible app. And all of these verses and the notes are available in our e-bulletin on the Bible app. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in a place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We're looking at the end of a long story. A long story. Uh, some people, maybe you, get a book and you like to read the end first. Um, that's what's happening here. I'm not one of those people. I'm like, I like the surprise. But some people are like, I need, I need to know what happens. This is the end of the story of the life of Joseph. And we see here a healing moment that will be kind of the, the core uh, passage for us as we talk this morning. But let me rewind a little bit. Joseph came from a big family. He had uh, 11, oh, 10 brothers at the time that he was sold into slavery. And later, Benjamin would be born. We need to understand something that this passage here in verse 20, actually verse 20 in Genesis, really is a summary of the heart behind the entire Bible. The entire Bible. Let me read it again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but, but God meant it for good to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All through Scripture, we see God's redemptive heart to bring people who were really headed towards destruction and death to bring them about to a place of life. And we see that theme repeated all the way through Scripture. So here's this, here's this young man named Joseph. Joseph was part of a big family. Uh, him and his brothers, uh, they, they were nomadic and they had herds. And, and Joseph was a favorite of his dad. He was the 11th son, and he was a favorite of his father. And, and, and his brothers despised him because of it. And there were some other character issues in, in Joseph's life. He was a little bit of a snotty kid. He was a tattletale. Um, and, and he didn't mind just kind of speaking his mind to his brothers, which drove them a little crazy. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But, they, but Joseph, in the midst of his family, starts encountering some issues. 
See, he's a part of a family just like every one of us are. Everybody on the face of the earth has a mother and a father. Now, what that family unit looks like varies greatly. There are people who know their parents and have a healthy relationship with their family. And then there's people who don't even know their parents, were born into a family and then actually never met their family. And it kind of runs the entire gamut. Well, Joseph was born into a family, and just like then, or just like now, rather, families had needs and families had issues. Can I get an amen? Amen. Families had issues. See, God has plans for good to bless people. Part of his plan for blessing people is to put them in a family. And the idea is that within the context of family and family relationship, we would reflect the image and the heart of God. Family was God's idea. Family was God's idea. We're created in His image to do what He does, to experience and to give love just as God does. Family is the place where He wanted us to do that. See, we come into the world, every one of us, we're born into this world with an intense hunger for stable, tender, loving, caring relationships. Every one of us. There's not a baby that's born that goes, hey, I'm good. Can you just give me my space? Right? If anything, babies learn really early. If I cry, I'm going to get the attention that I need. Am I right? At two o'clock in the morning, at three o'clock in the morning, at four o'clock in the morning, Every baby is born into this world with this written into them that God, they have a need for a stable environment. In fact, Al and Diane Pesso, who were psychologists in the 1950s, uh, wrote a paper, wrote a book, and identified five basic needs that need to be met for healthy development. And if you're into psychology at all, you'll recognize some of this because they're based their work off of Maslow's eight, the hierarchy of eight, eight needs that everyone has. And, you know, there's a whole study out there. But, but these five particular ones by Ellen Diane Peso really struck out, uh, suck out to me. And these are things, by the way, that are the ideal, that are ideally provided by a mother and father. The first is this, a need for place. That everyone is born with a need for place. That sense of belonging, uh, that, that sense of uh, I'm welcomed into a home and into a family and into an environment that's been prepared. Uh, when when uh, women are pregnant and they're nearing the end of their pregnancy, they, they go into a phase called nesting right? And nesting is I'm preparing my home. I'm preparing this place for this child to be received into, to be welcomed into. Um, and, and it's a place that, that we belong. It's a place that's familiar. I remember years ago, there was a McDonald's commercial where there's a guy in the, he, he's traveling for business and he's like in the little rental car and in the little hotel room. And then he sees like the golden glow on the wall and he looks out and he sees the arches and and he walks into McDonald's, and their whole thing was like, this is, it feels like home. I've never felt that in a McDonald's, <laughs> but I have felt it at a Starbucks. Um, <laughs> we have a need for place. Second need is this, the need to be nurtured. The need to be nurtured, that words and gestures of appreciation and affection, touch, being listened to and held, 
minister and meet at that nurturing need that each one of us has. And, and that happens at each stage of development. It looks different, right? I don't hold my 13-year-old in my arms like I did when they were a little baby, because that would just be weird. But, but when they're a baby, I hold them close. And, you know, maybe when my boys were older, we wrestled with each other and we did different things, but that need to be nurtured. The next thing would be the need for support, to be cared for and have an environment that, that supports you and encourages you, right? Provides for your need. The fourth is this, the need for protection. Every one of us is born into this world with a need to feel like we're protected, from physical, emotional, or sexual harm in our lives. And the last one is this, the need for limits or boundaries. Every one of us needs boundaries. Teenagers need boundaries. Three-year-olds need boundaries, right? Every one of us, adults, we need boundaries. Without boundaries, there are all sorts of challenges. We become narcissistic, self uh, self-absorbed, it's all about me. We become promiscuous. There's things that we, you know, we just do whatever we want to do. And so these are the five needs. Why is that important? Because God designed these. And while there was a couple and there have been psychologists and people writing books on all of these things, they were God's idea. And that God's design was that in the context of family, that these needs would be met. To be cared for, to be loved, to have boundaries, to be nurtured. The problem happens and the problem comes in in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. And we go from a place of being united to being broken. And there's rebellion that enters, rebellion against each other and rebellion against God. And from that moment on, families are broken and troubled and distorted from what God's original intent was. We find brothers, the first brothers, Cain and Abel, such disunity and such anger and such hatred that one would kill the other. The very first brothers in the Bible, because of sin, murder is brought into the world. Jealousy that escalates to the point that one would take the other life. We find destructive behaviors like criticism, abuse of authority, lying, emotional withholding, breaking promises, intimidation, blaming, denying secrets, pressure tactics, shaming, and put-downs. And this is in the first half of the first book of the Bible. That's what sin did in breaking what family. Can I just say, even in the very best family, the ideal family, because there's no perfect family, right? In the ideal family, in the very best of families, there's still sin and there's still brokenness. Not one of us emerges from our family of origin, our family situation, with our truth self unscathed. Every one of us bears wounds and scars, and our true self is damaged. Don't you feel encouraged this morning? It's true for all of us. Why is that important to know? We can't take steps towards healing unless we identify that there's a problem. That we identify that there's a problem. The challenge with this kind of material is that we could come to it and go, oh, that's for someone else. I know someone else who needs to read this. And the reality is that God wants to do a work in every one of us. Even small hurts are still hurts. Even small scars are still scars. 
And so God wants to bring us to a place where our true self, who is hidden in Christ, really is the thing that emerges that people get to see, exposing what is below the surface. See, unprocessed and unbiblical ways of being in the world are just lodged in us. Whether or not you grew up in a great home or not, because of Adam and Eve, the first parents, it's in us. We're born into sin, and because of that wrong ways, unprocessed and unbiblical ways of doing, doing life are just built into us, into who we are. And they, and they serve like a magnetic pull. Have you ever felt that pull where you're wanting to make better choices and decisions, and you know, oh, I've got I to move this direction, but there's this pull from the past that keeps tugging on you. Attitudes that just bubble up from nowhere, and you're like, what the heck is that? I thought that was done. Or that moment in your life when you realize that you just said something or did something that resembled your mom or dad, right? And you're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Where did that come from? And we know where that came from. I remember once we were, when uh, Mike and Blake were little, we were driving somewhere, and they were just little guys, and I can't remember who said it. Um, but, but one of them said the word darn, and they said it with attitude. And I was like, whoa, what, what did you just say? And I did the whole dad thing, right? Oh, where did you learn that? And Megan just looked at me and smiled, and she's like, uh, they learned that from you. You've heard this statement, more is caught than is taught, right? Pastor Wayne Cadero, uh, who pastors in Hawaii, he says it this way, you can teach what you know, but you ultimately reproduce what you are. You can teach what you know, but you ultimately reproduce what you are. And so we're, we're just built into us. There's these ways of doing things that we've picked up along the way from our immediate family, from our extended family, uh, from the Cosby family, right? I mean, can you just be honest that media has as much of an influence there? And we pick up things of the way of doing things that are not biblical, that are not the way that God wants us to do it. See, it's blood that determines our destiny. It's blood that determines that destiny. At first, it's the, the blood of your lineage. It's your family, right? We say blood is thicker than water. It's my blood, your family of origin. But now think about this. The blood of Jesus Christ shed for you, ushers you into a new family. You're adopted into a new family that gives you a new destiny. It's blood that determines your destiny. The cycle now is learning how to put off sinful patterns. Things that I learned from my biological family and from the culture around me and to be transformed in such a way that I can actually be who I am in Christ and through that become a blessing to the world. You have to know this. And you have to believe this. And you might not believe it in this moment, but it's true nonetheless. God put you here for a reason. Every single one of you, your life matters. Your life matters. No matter what's been said to you or done to you or decisions that you've made in your own life, your life matters. And God put you for a reason, here for a reason. 
But before we can move into that destiny and claim and lay a hold of the things that God has for us, we have to do this. We have to go back in order to go forward. We have to go back. So today we're going to look at the underside of this iceberg. We're going to talk in some generalities. We're going to talk about some things that may or may not pertain to you. So whatever doesn't fit, just take a note of it. Say, oh, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's neat, whatever. But pay attention for the things that don't just stand out to you intellectually, but really where God stirs your heart. And allow him to start doing a restorative healing work. See, many people are only aware of about one-tenth of what's going on. The one-tenth that we see and we hear, as I already said. Many of us suspect that there's more going on, but really have no idea how to find out what's really the root cause. Again, those places in our lives where we do things and we go, why did I do that? Why did I respond to that? Why is that irritating me so much? Why has that person rubbed me the wrong way? There's a reason for it and we need to find out. And here's the thing, not knowing is dangerous. Ignorance is not bliss. It's a minefield. And if we don't delve into this, we run the risk of repeating it over and over, just as a sailor needs to be aware when he's sailing through iceberg-infested waters. I don't know if that's how you term it, but we'll just go with that today. Sailing through waters where there's a lot of icebergs, to be aware that I can't just get close up to this iceberg on the surface because I know below the surface something's going to happen to sink the ship. And so that, that awareness has to be there. Our living well in Christ depends on understanding what's going on below the surface. So let's take a look at the life of Joseph. I want to put up on the screen here something called a, 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 a genogram. Genogram, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll go with it. This is a genogram of the life of Joseph. And, and it's something that you can do for your own family. And as you hear me talk about this, uh, you, you can even maybe even fill in some of the blanks for yourself. But this is the, 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 the lineage or the heritage of the life of Joseph. You see him down here in the bottom right corner in the yellow box. That's Joseph right there. And of course, that's all of his family. I know this is probably a little hard to read, um, but I'll, I'll walk us through this. As I mentioned, Joseph had a big family. And you can see all of his brothers and then his one sister, Dinah. Can you imagine being Dinah? Oh my goodness, what a house to grow up in. To have 12 brothers. Going back a couple of generations, all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, right at the top up there. See, Joseph's family was a blended family. He had, his father had two wives and two concubines. You see them down there. Leah, Rachel, uh, Bilhah, and Zilpa uh, were his two wives and his two concubines. Um, his father was a pathological liar. And, and as you can see, if you go back a generation after Isaac, he was a liar, and Abraham was a liar. And so there is this thread throughout this family line where we lie. It's what we do. His father was a pathological liar. He was a striver. He worked really hard to get ahead and try and make himself look good. And you can see how these themes kind of trickle down from generation to generation. Joseph was favored 
out of all of the sons. He was the 11th son, but he was his father's favorite. And you can go back in the book of Genesis and read about that. This can be one of the greatest challenges in parenting. See, we're as parents, we're supposed to love each one of our children. I have four kids and every one of them is completely different. And I celebrate them and I love them each for their differences, their personalities, their likes, their dislikes. See, but, but Joseph wasn't the way with him. His father, Jacob, preferred him over his brother's. He was the favorite, and so he got special treatment. He got a, a beautiful coat, right? The, the Technicolor dream coat. It was given to him, honored him. This lack of good parenting created all sorts of problems. Created tension between Joseph and his older brothers. Created tension between uh, Joseph's, uh, Joseph's other wives. In fact, in one passage, it's, one, it's like half of a verse, but it says that he's spending time with the concubines, with Bilhah and Zilpah, and he actually goes and he tattletales on them to Jacob. He doesn't like what they're doing, and so he goes. And, and of course, Jacob takes his side and backs him up because he's the favorite. And so there's all kinds of issues that were going on in the midst of that. Joseph, because of this favorite status, as he starts having these dreams about uh, and the, you know, who he is and, and what God's calling him to, has no qualm, has no issue going to his brothers. And he's like, hey, guys, hey, check it out. I had a dream. Let me tell you about my dream, knowing that the dream would be offensive to them. See, but he didn't have to worry about it because daddy had his back. All kinds of strife, right? You can almost just feel the tension in the family. And so we give the brothers a bad rap. And, and, and in all honesty, what they did was horrific. But Joseph was a pretty rough kid. And because of Jacob really fueling that fire, there were some real issues. And his brothers end up at a place of envy and hatred. In fact, we saw that with David as well, right? When David shows up on the scene and 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 and. Goliath is there, and, and, and uh, Eliab hates his brother. He hates this young guy, kind of for different reasons, but you see the, the propensity to hatred towards a brother, just like Cain and Abel. You see down in the left corner, identifying some earthquake events or traumatic, some of the key traumatic events in Jacob, I mean Joseph's life. Uh, the first being the betrayal of his brothers, coming to a place where he meets his brothers in and they start plotting on how to kill him. And one of his brothers says, no, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. They throw him into that pit, right? And he's hanging out at the bottom of the pit and can hear them talking about him, what they're going to do with him and the kind of lies they're going to need to tell their father to cover their tracks. Of course, he's sold into slavery and we see the second earthquake event for Joseph is that his loss of his culture and his country and his family he gets shipped off to Egypt, 17 years old. 17 years old. I have a 17-year-old in my house. I can't imagine him being shipped off to another country, to a different culture, away from family, away from religion, away from everything. How traumatic that must have been for him as a young man. And then, of course, while he's in Egypt, there's some uh, circumstances there that unfold. In fact, he's 
a slave in the house of Potiphar. We see this in Genesis chapter 39. Potiphar's wife unjustly accuses him of rape. And he spends 11 years in prison. 11 years in prison. And check this out. Joseph has no hope of someone finding him. There's no hope. There's no one coming to visit him. There's no family on the outside. He is completely alone because he's been removed from everything. And so how each one of these defining moments, these traumatic events builds on the next one feels impossible for Joseph. How can I even move forward from where I'm at? I am absolutely and completely stuck. I don't know about you, but with that kind of family background, by the time you get down to Joseph, I would imagine the words that would be used to describe him would be hatred, bitterness, disconnect, loathing, right? Depressed, isolated. That should, that's what should be a part of Joseph's life. The things that he inherits from generations, sibling rivalry, favoritism, by the way, which we see again in all of those generations, handed down, handed down, and handed down. And so Joseph ends up in this place where he's alone and there's no hope. How do I go forward? Maybe some of us would say things like this. My family ruined my life. My family wasted years of my life, years that I can't get back. Or maybe even this, what family? I don't have a family. That's not a family. I've disowned them. I've left them. I don't want to be a part of them at all. See, but that's not how the story finishes for Joseph. Far from it. See, we find Joseph in Egypt in prison for 11 years. And by the way, there's another story intermingled with that. We interpret dreams for the, the baker and the cupbearer. You remember that? And the cupbearer is restored and the baker loses his life. And he says to the cupbearer, hey, don't forget about me. He specifically says the words, don't forget about me because no one else knows that I'm here. Don't forget about me. And what does he do? He forgets about him. He forgets about him. And, and I, again, just adding to those layers of rejection and hurt. Don't forget about me. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And he can't figure out the dream. And no one, none of these wise men and none of the, the seers and none of the... That, no one can figure it out. And there's the cupbearer in the presence of the king. And he goes, wait a minute. I remember this guy, really, it's kind of funny because you go, yeah, you owe him your life. <laughs> oh, I remember this guy that's in prison. I think he might be able to interpret the dream. And, and so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and, and, and he interprets the dream. And overnight, Joseph goes from being a prisoner with no hope of release to being second in command of the nation of Egypt. Talk about a quick change. His life is turned upside down. And he didn't move to Bel Air. I'm sorry, that just popped into my head. I spent four weeks at camp, and that song was one of the songs. <laughs> so I'm going to lighten things a little bit. Turned upside 
down. I'm sorry, I lost my place here. <laughs> 22 years pass. There's a famine in the land. All of the dreams that Joseph interprets come around to be. There's, a, there, there's the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine. And when the famine hits, Joseph's family comes to Egypt, Egypt to find food. 22 years have passed. Remember, 17 years old. 22 years later, Joseph encounters his brother for the first time. Now, if I were writing this story... And if you were writing the story, I imagine it would look a little different to what's in the Bible. Because, man, I feel, even knowing the end of the story, the hurt, the pain, the frustration of what that must have felt like, I could, I could dream up a pretty gruesome ending for this story. But it's not the way that it goes. See, it's mind-boggling to think that Joseph not only could have, but he had the authority. He had the absolute authority to kill his brothers when he had the chance. And no one would have questioned it. See, because they were Hebrew. And he was Egyptian for all intents and purposes. He had the authority. He could just said, hey, those guys right there, that, that 10, that group of 10, take them out back and take their heads off. And no one would have thought twice about it. He had the absolute authority he could have exhibited passive-aggressive behavior. He could have done this. Hey, you guys, remember the dream? Remember that dream I told you about? Right? <laughs> Who's laughing now? Come on. How many of us would just be like, yeah. He could have had them put in jail and said, hey, do you want to know how it feels like to be in my shoes? Going from the pit to going to the prison? Hey, why don't you spend some time behind bars and you can walk in my shoes a little bit and see what it feels like. Could have been really bitter. Could have said this. I don't even recognize those guys. They are not my family and I have nothing, want nothing to do with them. I have no family. But he doesn't. See, Joseph chooses a completely different road. See, he, he in, in essence says this, I'm a Christian. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes. Do they use the term Christian? No. But we understand it's the same God. His life is submitted and surrendered to Christ, and he is reflecting the image of God, which by definition is he's a believer. He is a Christian. So the way that I lived before and what came before is over. I don't identify with that anymore. I recognize that God is doing something different in my life, not only at this moment, but moving forward. In fact, if you look down here in the bottom corner, his oldest son, Manasseh, his name means making me forget that I've forgotten what's come before. And then his, old, his youngest son, Ephraim, Fruitful in the land of suffering. He names his children after his experience with God. God has helped me to forget the pain that I've walked, for, walked through. And he's made me fruitful in the land that I've suffered in. Man, Joseph was a solid, solid guy. So let's look at three practical points of application. Because I can't relate to being thrown in a pit or sold into slavery 
or being accused as a slave or spending 11 years in prison, and, and most likely you can't either. So let's draw some practical applications for ourselves. Number one is this, recognize the iceberg in you from your family. Recognize the iceberg in you from your family of origin. See, it's easy for us to hate or ignore our past as we get older. The more distance and the more time we have, the easier it is to just go, hey, it's in the past. It doesn't affect me anymore. That was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But I imagine it's more like this. It's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Why does it still affect me as much as it, did, it does today? But we try and forget. We try and ignore it. Joseph's life, Joseph's life was shaped by his family and by his adversity. It was absolutely by, shaped by his experience. And, and the reality is in the church today, most of our approach to discipleship discounts and really never even looks at where we've come from. We quote 2 Corinthians, right? You are a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. And therefore, let's not even look at the new. The, the reality is that God is moving us from the old into the new and to make a good transition, we need to stop and say, where am I coming from? Because where I'm coming from will affect where I'm going. My view of family, of my father, of my mother, of siblings will impact my view of who God is and my relationship with the church with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Most discipleship processes don't look at that. One of the things that I'm excited for for the future of our church with Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is that this is going to be something we keep doing because I believe this is one of the greatest needs that we have in our culture today is the need to go below the surface and be real about who we are because church, we're so good at faking it and it's exhausting and I'm not talking about outside the church. I'm talking about in here. God wants us to be the real us. He wants you to be the real you. See the effect from your family, your birth family, your biological family, your family of origin is so much deeper and so much greater than you even realize. I recognize even studying this and reading about these things and having an awareness realizing that it goes so much deeper than I even know. Why? Because I, I serve a good father and he knows what I need before I even say a word or I'm aware of it. He knows the points of healing that need to be in there. Years later, after Joseph's brothers and his father comes and they're established in Egypt and become a mighty nation, and then one of the pharaohs gets afraid and he says, we've got to get these guys under control because they're going to take us over. And so they bring him into a place of slavery. Years later, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, it takes him 40 years to unlearn what they learned in Egypt. That that mark of slavery was so deep, 400 years of identity had to be undone. And that's part of the reason why they walked around in the desert. If you look at that genogram, you look at Joseph's family, and you realize there's patterns and there's issues. 
We need to know this, that our families have patterns. There's things that might be a part of your life that you don't even realize are generational, are things that have been passed on to you. I would encourage you to take some time to do this for your own family. Knowing this, the goal is not to dig up dirt and trash about our parents or our grandparents. The goal here is healing and wholeness and awareness. In many cases, the, the families that we have and the parents we have did the best they could with what they had. And so the goal is not to trash people or to slight them, but it's to raise our awareness to negative patterns in our, our, our families so that we can live free. We have the opportunity to choose. See, because when I look at something like this and I can go, hey, there's two or three generations of this kind of behavior, I get to choose and say, Lord, would you bring healing to that part of my family and to my life so I don't repeat that same pattern so that my children, that it doesn't show up in their, their families and in their children, investing in generations. We get to choose without realizing the families that we grow up in establish rules for us. Ten Commandments, as it were. I want to read through these really quickly. Really quickly. Um, will they be up on the screen? Okay. You can write them down, and I'm going to touch on these because I've still got two more points I need to get to. The first is this. Ten Commandments. Money. Money. Money in many families is, is seen as this, the best source of security. The more money you have, the happier you're going to be, the more secure you're going to be. So you better, you better go after money. You better make the smart choice. You better save and you better have a retirement. Not saying that those are bad things, but it can't be a core identity. The more money you have, the more important you are. So make lots of money to prove that you made it. That's very true of, of uh, immigrant families first and second generation families where, where, where the, the, the first generation say, hey, you don't know what we went through to get you here, so you better do well. And how that trickles down from generation to generation. Conflict would be number two. Some families, it's avoid conflict at all costs. You hear people say things like, I never saw my parents fight ever until the day they announced they were getting a divorce. Right? And then some families... Man, all it ever is is conflict. I grew up in a house, no, not me personally. I mean, I'm saying people would say, I grew up in a house where all I ever knew was shouting and yelling and screaming. So conflict, we kind of run both, with both ends of the spectrum. Conflict in a way that says that don't let people get mad at you or don't, get, uh, don't, don't let that happen. Don't give it place. Number three is this, sex, sexuality. Everything from a home where promiscuity is both endorsed and accepted and, and it's okay and there's no boundaries to a home where it says that we never even talk about it. We just, we never talk about it. And so the kids, kids grow up in a home where there's no idea. And so you are, you're learning it out in the world and you're learning it in media. Sexuality is a, a means of gratification or control or manipulation. Number four is this, grief and loss. Hey, don't be sad. Sadness is a sign of weakness. Sadness is a sign of weakness. You better not cry. 
You better not cry. You better not be, be you better put a smile on because you have it good, right? You have it good. You live in a house. You have food to eat. So there's no reason for you to be upset. You're not allowed to be up, addressed or if, if you're upset, you better get over it quickly. Things that are said to us, maybe even with good intentions, but that mark us. Expressing anger, number five. Using anger to make a point. We're using sarcasm as an acceptable way to express your anger. So it's not quite straight up angry, but you know there's this angry kind of, there's something there and you're like, I don't feel right. We need to recognize that um, some families grow up saying, looking at anger, saying anger is bad and it's dangerous. So we just don't get angry in this house. Jesus got angry, right? Jesus got angry. God the Father, there's places where he got angry. But he got angry for the right reasons and he expressed it in a healthy way. Number six, family. Ideas like this, you owe your parents for all they've done for you. You owe us. I had someone tell me once that their, their parent and father had sat down with them and actually had tabulated and added up how much it cost to raise them from when they were born and presented it to them. Imagine the damage that would do. This is how much you've cost me. Ugh. Family, we don't talk about our family in public. Hey, what happens behind closed doors? We're, this, this is our family. It's, you're not open to share. And so no one ever knew, right? And you, yeah, again, you hear families, it's like they seem like the perfect family. Perfect family. Everything was great until things just completely fall apart. Or the duty to family and culture comes before everything else. Family is more important than anything else, and you better not, better not undermine your family. Number seven is this, relationships. Don't trust people. They will let you down. Maybe that's something you heard in your home. You just can't trust anyone. Probably some generational things there where people were hurt legitimately. And so it, it, it evolves into a commandment, something's established. Just don't trust people in, in, we don't trust people in this house. Or making statements like this, no one will ever hurt me ever again. Which is not reality. We try and build these walls or don't show vulnerability. Don't let people really see who you are because they'll hold it against you. Number eight, attitudes to other, towards other cultures. Only be close friends with people who are like you or have the same ethnic background or come from the same country. Things like this, don't marry a person of another race or culture. We don't do that. That's not acceptable in our family. How about this one? Just the idea that certain cultures and certain, certain races are not as good as ours. We're tolerant of other people, but we're, we're really better. Our culture is better. And those things that get built into a child's life. How about success, number nine? Success is getting into the best schools. Success is making lots of money. Success is getting married and having children. Success is whatever it is, fill in the blank. But if you're successful, that you know, in this family, we're successful. There's no losers in this family. We're going to succeed. 
You better not tarnish the, the name of this family by not being successful. And then feelings and emotions, the last one. You're not allowed to have certain feelings. You can't feel a certain way. And, and you know, especially boys, boys, you can't be emotional. Boys don't show emotion. That's not what we do. Or, or just this, your feelings are not important. We're just looking at the facts. Feelings have not, no bearing on this at all. Well, I don't want to move to another state. doesn't matter. It's what we're doing. Little things like that, and commandments that are established and rules that are established and govern our families of origin from generation to generation where we have no idea and so often we don't know where it even comes from. If you had to dig a little bit, I imagine that there's things that your family kind of holds on to and, and, and in generations in your family that if really pressed to answer what was the origin of that, we go, I don't even know. There's a story, in fact, that's told of, of a, a ham being put in an oven and there's a grandma and a, 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 her daughter and then the granddaughter. And every, every uh, Thanksgiving or Easter, they would do the ham and, and the mom would always cut the end, you know, like the, the, the pointy part, they would cut the end off the ham and then put it in the oven. And so the daughter asked the mom, why do we cut the end off of the ham when we put it? Is there, is there a reason for it? And the mom says, well, I don't know. My mom always did it. So they go ask grandma, well, why do, we, why do you cut the end off of the ham? And she goes, well, it's kind of funny. Now that you ask, she goes, my mom, when she first came to this country, had a little apartment with a little stove. And the oven was so small that the ham never fit in. And so she would always have to cut the end off of the ham. But because she saw her mom doing it, even though they had an oven plenty big enough, things that we do from generation to generation, well, because I saw my parents do it. And I saw my grandparents do it. But why? No idea. And those things can really sneak in. Second is this. Discern the good God intends in, through, and in spite of your family and past. Discern the good God intends in, through, and in spite of your family and past. See, we started out reading Genesis 50, 19 through, through 21 or 19 through 22. But in verse 20 of Genesis 50, it says this, As for you, Joseph speaking to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. How did Joseph get to that point? How did Joseph arrive at a place after 22 years where he could say, you know what? God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and he's actually going to save people's lives because of it. How does he arrive at such a point of such clarity and self-awareness and awareness of who God is that he can make that statement to a group of men that he should have hated? And they're afraid, by the way, this, is, this statement is made after the whole encounter with him and his brothers. And finally, Jacob is brought to, to, to Egypt and he sees his father. And they've actually been living in the land for a while. And, and, and Joseph has been expressing to his brothers, I'm not mad at you. But then after Jacob dies, they're thinking, okay, now that Jake, he's just been kind to us because dad's been around. But now that dad's gone, 
all bets are off. And so they make up something that Joseph, Jacob said, blah, blah, blah. Hey, be kind to your brothers and forgive them. So they're still lying. Still got crazy issues going on. And Joseph's like, oh my goodness. We're cool. Not only that, God intended this for good. How do you get to that place? Well, here... Here's what he knew from a young age. While he didn't have these specific passages because they would be written later on, he knew this about the heart of God because we know that God doesn't change. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Before these words were even written, Joseph knew that that was the heart of God. And can I just remind you, he was 17. So from 17 to 39 years old, right? Well, math. 22 years. From 17 to 39, whatever was already in him of his knowledge and his love of God sustained him without a church family, without Air One or Caleb on the radio, Right? Without good preaching or podcast, without a Bible, without the same language, without the same culture, whatever he knew already at 17 sustained him from, for, for 22 years until he was 39 years old. And he didn't lose sight of it because he knew the heart of God. And while his family was messed up, there was something that did stick out to him about who God was and who God was in his life. Even looking further into the future, Paul would write these words in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul actually goes on to say, who, for those of us who are being conformed into the image of Christ. Joseph knew this. He knew that the heart of God was for him, not against him, and that God would cause all of these bad circumstances to work for his good and for the good of others. So sitting in a prison cell for 11 years every day, waking up going, you know what? I know God's up to something. God's doing something. I've got to believe that God's working in the midst of this, and I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to serve him even though I'm a slave, even though I'm a prisoner, even though I've been wrongly accused, even though I've been forgotten and scorned and shamed. I'm going to believe that God is doing something in the midst, and he was, and he was. God's plan works through everything. Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God knows best. See, the evil plans of humans and the evil plans of the enemy do not defeat God's story. Think about this at the cross. See, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know the future. At Calvary, he thought he'd won. Satan thought that he had won. I crucified God. I won. Jesus endures agony and pain, hangs on that cross, and Satan is gloating. But instead, he had actually helped God secure salvation. 
He had precipitated the thing that would bring about salvation for God's people. Evil plans do not upturn and upend or defeat God's story and God's plan. Out of suffering and death comes life. Genesis 50, 20 is the gospel. What you intended for evil, God has turned around for good so that other people would be blessed. God is bringing about good in your life and through your life. And if you can come to a place where you can muddle through Hey, what is the family I grew up in? What does my past look like? When I look back, it's not easy, but I recognize that God was shaping and doing something in my life, and I have to believe that at this point in time that he's bringing me to a place that will be good. Amen? His brothers here are, they're thinking the hammer's about to drop. They're afraid. In fact, when they find the silver cup in the, in the, uh, in the grain, what was their, because they didn't know it was Joseph yet, what was their thought? We're being punished. We're being punished. And the reality is that, that we're, they were being blessed. They thought they were being punished, but God was blessing. God is in the business of blessing his children. Last point is this. Make the decision to do the hard work of discipleship. So we need to recognize the iceberg in you from your family. Need to discern the good God intends in through and in spite of your family and past. And then you need to make a decision to do the hard work of discipleship. Now please notice what this doesn't say. It doesn't say that the pastor or the church needs to do the hard work of discipleship for you. Can I just tell you this morning, you are responsible for your discipleship. Imagine it this way. You are a ship. You are a vessel in the water. And then God brings His Holy Spirit and He brings people into your life and He brings the church to be the wind in your sails, but it's your job to raise the sail. Otherwise, you're dead in the water. And so, so as a body of Christ... And as a pastor, I want to say, church, we want to, we want to be a discipling church. We want to see people move from death into life, from unhealth into health, from a lack of purpose into an understanding of a call of God on your life. But I can't raise the sail for you, and God won't raise the sail for you. You have to do the hard work of discipleship in your own life. You have to take ownership. And it's not easy. And it's not quick. Hey, let me just take a quick couple of classes and listen to a podcast and I should be good to go. No, it's taken years, decades for you to get to where you are. And it's going to take time for God to undo some of what needs to be undone. God was, Joseph rather was faithful as a slave. He was faithful as a prisoner. Regardless of the circumstances he was in, he was committed personally to following God. So that when he re-engages with his family, it's an open door for ministry, not a reminder of the hurt. 
when you engage in the hard work of discipleship, God will start opening doors to ministry that you never knew were there before. Because as you become more self-aware of who you are in Christ, He can trust you with other people. And He can make sure that you're not going to get hurt in the process. He will lead you in the journey. You need to do the work, but He will lead you. He will bring trusted friends alongside of you to stand with you, to cry with you, to celebrate with you. If you've never sat with a good friend, a trusted friend, and say, hey, would you tell me what you see in me? My attitudes, my behaviors, what do you see? And honestly ask for that assessment. It's a good place to go. But make sure it's someone you trust. And then listen. And then listen. Because I know for me and my, my genogram, there's a lot of defensiveness. You confront things in me and I will give you a hundred reasons why you're wrong. Even though you're completely right. We have to let down that guard. Being a part of small groups, being a part of the journaling groups during the week, being a part of an EHS course, finding ways and finding materials and books and, and understanding that will help unpack what's going on in your life. Do a genogram, genogram rather for yourself. Do one of those, map, map it out. If you're able to, if you have family members or, or, or you know, grandparents or parents, you can say, hey, can, can you tell me a little bit more about our family and just some of the history and do it in an honoring way? But start finding out where you've come from. And of course, you know, like in a marriage, you're bringing two completely different families together, right? Hello, baggage, right? Like some of us brought like a match set of luggage, in, right? Um, We've all got that. Grieving a loss is involved. Looking back is hard. There's things that will grieve you. Things that you'll go, you know what, this is... Realize that Joseph wasn't fake. When he sees Benjamin, when they bring his younger brother who he's never met, he goes into the other room and he cries like a baby. So much so that the Egyptians can hear him. He doesn't just go, hey, it's all good. Hey, we're, we're together. No, he feels deeply and he gives himself the place to feel deeply. This journey of discipleship will require that you risk feeling deeply. And some of that might be the feeling of loss and sadness and grief. And that's okay. Journal, write things down. Write down what God is speaking to you. And of course, we've been talking about silence and solitude. Get alone with Jesus and let him speak to you in a quiet place. God has placed you here for a purpose in the same way that he put Joseph in Egypt for a reason and he restored the bad for his glory. God has you here today for a reason and he wants you to partner with him to discover what that is. But it takes work. Joseph became a blessing to the nations. He breaks free, and it's an incredible story. I'm going to close with this. In 1954, a gentleman, gentleman named Roger Bannister did something that had never been done before. Anyone know what that was? 
He ran the four-minute mile. First time in history it had ever been done. And, and there were people who said it was impossible, that it would never be done, that you couldn't run faster than four minutes in a one-mile uh, span. He broke the four-minute mile. You can actually YouTube this. There's video footage of it. Afterwards, within six weeks of him breaking it, a Canadian runner did it as well. And then a few months later, the two of them competing in the same race, they ran again, and Roger Bannister beat his previous time and broke it again. And since then, many, many, many runners, not, not, not many numbers, but there's many runners who have broken it many times. In fact, the current world record, if, if you're interested, is an Ethiopian runner who did it in 3 minutes and 43 seconds. In November 2005, Forbes magazine declared, after interviewing a number of sports experts, that Bannister's four-minute mile was the greatest athletic achievement of all time. And here's why. Because it opened the door where people said something that was impossible was now possible. You've been watching the Olympics this week. You, you've seen some records fall. The U.S. swimmer who broke the, the uh, I think it was the 800-meter freestyle. What was her name? Ledecky, right? Man, she, she didn't just break it. She shattered it. Next swimmer was 11 seconds behind her. <laughs> 11 seconds. I heard a comedian say this week, every race and every event at the Olympics should include one average person for reference. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. So we, could, so we could just know, like, okay, that's what a normal person would do. Because they're all, listen. Christ died and rose again so you could break through. Not through a four-minute mile, but through the sin and the shame and the brokenness that marks your past into a future that looks completely different. Blood determines your destiny, but it's not the blood that runs in your vein. It was the blood that ran at Calvary. And God has something new. Let's stand together. Our prayer team will be available after service right in the back. If you need to pray with someone and if there's something that the Lord's just touched on your heart or maybe something that, that just kind of is a sore spot this morning and you'd, you'd just like to pray with someone, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you and agree that God is going to bring breakthrough in your life. So our prayer team will be available. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Um, and as they do, just a reminder, during our final song, our ushers will come forward to receive uh, the tithes and offering and also our connect cards. Let's pray. Father... You are a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you've always been. You were a good father to Adam and Eve. You were a good father to Joseph. You were a good father to Jesus. And you're a good father to us. And Lord, I thank you that as difficult as it is to look back, that there's nothing behind us. There's nothing in our past that is too difficult for you to heal. There, there's nothing in our past and in, in our generations that's too, too, too much for you to overcome.
to bring healing to, to restore, to breathe life into. And God, I thank you that today in this place that you've called us here for a reason. That you're committed to our wholeness and to our healing. And right on the heels of that, God, that you want to use us to be a blessing to others. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.